All right, take out your scriptures and open with me to Matthew chapter 10. Going to continue looking at that glorious chapter where God himself is commissioning us, commissioning the 12 and through them us. So you can think of, uh, you know, we often think of Matthew 28 as the Great Commission, but we're, we're really cherry picking this for what we can learn about our Great Commission by him sending out those 12 disciples. After the siege in Rome in 1849, when the Romans, when the uh, Italians were trying to gain back their independence from the French and reunify, After their failed siege of Rome, they met to debate three options going forward. Should they continue fighting in the streets of Rome, surrender, or retreat? As the assembly droned on and debated these three options, General Giuseppe Garibaldi stormed into the chamber covered in blood and took the floor. He pleaded for them to fight on even against overwhelming odds. And these were his closing words. He said, Men, all of our efforts against superior forces have been unavailing. I have nothing to offer you except hunger and thirst and hardship and death. But I call on all who love their country to join me. Almost a hundred years later, Winston Churchill picked up on Garibaldi's words and said something very similar after they retreated from Dunkirk in 1940. He addressed the nation and he said, all I can offer you is blood and sweat and tears, but we must go forward. All great leaders are realistic with their followers. They don't candy coat things. They tell you what you are facing. They tell you what you are going to experience if you go forward. And here Jesus is sending out these 12 men and he's telling them that as they go out into the people of Israel and as they proclaim that the Messiah has come, that the kingdom is at hand, that they are going to face incredible opposition. Incredible opposition. And so he prepares them. Look with me at verse, starting in verse 16. He says to his followers, 12, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep amidst the wolves. So be silent, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men. For they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious of how you are to speak or what you are to say, for that what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brothers will deliver brothers over to death and fathers as child and children will rise up against their parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. 
When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly, I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign those of his household? So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore. You are more valuable than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge before the father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my father who is in heaven. Do not think I've come to bring peace on the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I've come to set man against his father and daughter against her mother and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those in his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Whoever receives me, receives you, receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Father God, there is much here that we need to absorb, that we need to hear from you. And so I implore you, Spirit, enliven the words that I have studied so hard to craft. Make them yours and implant them in the minds and hearts of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Forewarned is forearmed. That's the saying. Corey Tenboom pointed out, the first step on any way to victory is to recognize the enemy. And that's what Jesus is doing here. He is forewarning and forearming his disciples as he has sent them out. Last week, we began to look at Jesus's commission of the 12 disciples, and he sent them with specific instructions, if you remember, to go to the lost sheep of Israel only, to take nothing with them, and to heal the sick and raise the dead and cleanse lepers and cast out demons. And we discussed last week how their ministry and their commission 
is similar yet dissimilar from ours, right? But he sends them out and he sends us out with the same message, right? Go and proclaim that Christ has come. Go and proclaim the Messiah has come, that heaven is near, that salvation is at hand. And Jesus knows that as he sends them out with that message, it is going to be opposed. He knows this. That there is going to be open hostility, that there is going to be hatred to that message. And so he forewarns them. Expect persecution. He is forewarning in the rest of this chapter. What he's doing is he's warning his disciples to expect persecution. In Acts 17, Paul proclaims the gospel to the Athenians, if you remember that chapter, in his famous sermon of to the unknown God. And it says, after he finished the sermon, the scripture says, when they, the Athenians, heard about the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we want to hear you on this subject again. At that, Paul left the council. But a few men became followers of Paul. So basically what what Acts is telling us is there's going to be three reactions when we go out and proclaim Christ. There's going to be three ways people are going to respond to that. Some are going to believe, as the Athenians did. Some are going to be curious. Tell me more. I'm not convinced, but I need more. And the third reaction is going to be, well, Paul was mocked, mocking some sort of opposition. I think we can generally expect one of these three reactions as we go out, just as the disciples went out. And we need to be prepared for that type of mocking, whatever form that comes in. We need to be prepared for that. Perhaps some of you, as you've shared Christ over the years, have experienced these three reactions or experienced some opposition. Because there's a lot to mock about what we proclaim. There's a lot to mock about the gospel. I mean, we tell people that our Savior was born of a virgin birth. Right? We tell them that this man is actually God in the flesh. I mean, come on. We tell them then on top of that, that this man, this God man, who's who's born of a virgin, lived a perfectly sinless life. I mean, every pagan we know knows that they make mistakes. And we're saying this man never did. But the mocking gets more intense as we go deeper into the gospel, doesn't it? We tell them that Christ actually died for their sins. That he substituted himself by taking your place before God's wrath. I mean, what are are the reactions we get to that? Why why do I need saving? You're, You're calling me a sinner? What gives you that right? Then we tell them that this this perfect God-man, virgin-born, 
rose from the dead three days later. Living, physically. I mean, come on, how ridiculous. But the opposition will actually get worse as we, as we proceed on because we tell people that unless you believe and trust Jesus for your salvation, you have no hope. In other words, Jesus is the only way. I mean, how is that received? How can, how can Christianity have the monopoly on salvation? Come on. And then we add, if you don't trust him, you're on the road to hell. Oh, how nicely is that received? Who are you? Who are you to tell me I'm going to hell? What gives you the right? And it escalates from there. That's the reaction that Jesus was preparing his disciples to encounter. That's the, that's the reaction that, that we need to be prepared to absorb as we proclaim the true and full and right gospel. We have to realize that, that those words that we're saying, although they're received as harsh and hateful, are actually the most loving thing we can say to a person. We're loving them. We're loving their soul. But they're not going to receive it that way. And the environment will become hostile. So Jesus forewarns them and us by saying, I'm sending you out like sheep among a pack of wolves. That's what he's saying in verse 16. I'm sending you out into a very dangerous situation. And he describes some of those situations they'll face in their lifetimes, in verses 17 and 18, he tells them that, that men and, and uh, those in power will drag you before them and hold you accountable. This happened to the apostles. You remember John and Peter in Acts 4 were dragged before the Sanhedrin and flogged. Paul was 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 brought before kings after king after king, Felix and Festus and Agrippa, to give account for his words. I mean, the first couple centuries are filled with brothers and sisters who, who experience this. But then Jesus goes on and says, it's not just the opposition just isn't going to come from without. It's going to come from within, too. Look at verses 21 and 22. There's going to be wolves also close to you in your own household. Brother will deliver brother over to death and father his child, children against parents. In other words, the gospel is so powerful and so incendiary that those closest to you might turn on you. And perhaps some of you, brothers and sisters, have, have weathered a little bit of that in, in your own family groups. Just as the twelve did. Just as your Savior did when one of his own family, close twelve disciples, Judas, turned on him. So Jesus wants to forearm them that 
A disciple is not above his teacher. These are familiar words to us, isn't it? He, he echoed these same words in some of the last words he said to his disciples because he wanted to, to cement this principle into his disciples. No teacher, no disciple is above their teacher. Nor is a servant above their master. If they persecuted you, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you. In other words, a follower of Christ should expect their life to in some way mirror their Savior's. Brother and sister, in some way, shape or form, your life and in, in, in the pressures and trials and persecutions that come for His namesake should in some way be mirrored in your life. That the world will be at odds with you. David Platt put it this way. He said, the reality we face is this. The danger of our lives will increase in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. Brothers and sisters, as you fall deeper and deeper and deeper in love with your Savior, the promise in Scripture is that you will become more like him. That's a promise in Scripture. You become more like him. And as you do, you'll become more like him in the persecution that he faced. See, Jesus is permitted in polite society. Jesus is permitted in polite society, but only as a hobby. If Jesus is your hobby, you will go through life without persecution, relatively comfortable. You will. The world accepts Jesus as an interest. They really do. They'll even ask you about your interest. The church, is just, if, if the church is just another activity in your life, that's fine with the world. If the gospel is just another truth among many, that's okay with everybody. If our religion is just a routine that we do, the world will never, ever oppose us. The world accepts lock, stock, and barrel a personal and private faith. But that's not what Jesus calls us to do, is it? This very chapter is about God sending them out as he sends us out. He calls us to a deep relationship with him. He doesn't call us to have him as an interest. He calls us to take up our cross and follow him. He calls us to share the hope that is within us. He calls us, brothers and sisters, into an uncomfortable life. Philippians 1.29 says, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his namesake. 
So if you want to avoid hatred and persecution, don't fall in love with Jesus. If you want to live a comfortable life, treat the church as you treat surfing and sewing. If you want to be safe and loved by the world, just talk about the gospel as one truth among many. Because the danger of our lives will increase in proportion to the depth of our relationship with Christ. If you don't want to be persecuted, don't pursue a relationship with Christ. Keep it surfacy. Keep it light. Keep it a hobby. Because Jesus is forearming his followers and forewarning his followers what to expect if we go deeper. The danger and persecution that comes along with him being the center of our lives. And what he wants to do is forearm us. And that's what the rest of the chapter is all about. He's told us what we're going to expect but now what he's going to do in the rest of the chapter is, is arm us with, okay, you're going to, you're going to be in, in opposition with the world. How do we deal with that? Give, give me some, some help on that. Give me some handholds on that. And he's going to give us five handholds, five ways that, that is going to help us deal with persecution. We're going to deal with, talk about two of them today and three of them next week. And the first one that we see here is deal with your persecutions wisely. That's the first handhold. And we see that in verse 16. If you look at verse 16, he says, I'm sending you out as sheep amidst the wolves. So be wise as serpents, yet innocent as doves. Here Jesus is calling us, those disciples and us, to be cunning and shrewd like a snake, yet without the malice that comes along with it. Serpents and snakes in in Scripture is a metaphor for malicious shrewdness, malicious shrewdness, evil cunning. We see that right back at the beginning of Scripture in Genesis 3, when the Satan comes on the scene, how is he... How is he portrayed in scripture? He's portrayed as a snake. And it says there, now the serpent was more cunning than any other beast in the field. Snakes from the very beginning in scripture represent cunning and shrewdness like Satan, tempting Adam and Eve away from God, cunningly, shrewdly, thoughtfully, purposefully, making them think that God is unreasonable. That he is restrictive. That he is just plain old wrong when he says you will surely die. Satan says, you won't die. His temptation was brilliantly cunning, but it was also full of malice and hatred. But here Jesus is calling his followers to be as shrewd or as cunning as snakes just as thoughtful, just as wise, 
in our approach to the pressures that we will face out there in the world. Be wise, be cunning, be thoughtful, be prepared, yet without malice, retaining our innocence. No anger in our hearts. That's what Jesus is teaching in in probably one of the most confusing parables that he ever taught in Luke 16. If you remember the parable of the shrewd manager, in that parable, a, a rich man fires his money manager. And the money manager says, uh, I'm out of a job. What am I going to do? I'm going to, I know, I will ingratiate myself to the people who owe my, my boss money by reducing their debt. So he brings in those who owe debt to the rich man and he takes down the measure of oil from 100 measures to 50, 100 measures of wheat to 80. And the rich man finds out that he's doing this with his debt, reducing all that debt. And he commends the manager for doing that. In conclusion, Jesus says this, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. He's actually admonishing us to be more wise, to be more shrewd, to be more cunning as we go out into the world. He's not commending the means, but he's certainly commending the motive. The way in which the manager was creative and smart under pressure. And that's how we're to be under the pressure of persecution and difficulties and trials and pressures that we have because of the gospel. Cunning and shrewd like snakes, wise, yet devoid of the malice that comes with it. Take the good quality of the snake and not the bad, basically. Back in Matthew, Jesus gives an example of this in verse 23. He says to them, when you are persecuted in one place, in one town, what are you supposed to do? Be wise about it. Flee to the next. Jesus is telling them not just to give in to the persecution. I mean, we saw this with Paul over and over again in his ministry, didn't we? Even very early on in chapter 9, right after he gets converted and comes back and he goes to Damascus and and they're going to kill him. What, what, do, what does he do? He has the, the believers lower him down at night in a basket from the wall to get out of there safely before he's killed. Flee like Jesus did for the first three years of his ministry. When they tried to kill him, they weren't able to catch him. But Jesus also gives them a sense of gospel urgency in this as well. The mission of spreading the gospel is too important, too urgent. Jesus wants them to flee and keep the mission going. This is an important message. If it takes you fleeing, flee and keep talking, keep proclaiming. I think this... 
This is the principle Jesus means to communicate when he says in the very next line, and if you look there, it says, I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. If you are an astute Bible reader, you realize that this is a difficult verse. This is probably in the top five difficult verses of the New Testament. And it all centers around the word comes. What does Jesus mean by the Son of Man coming? He seems to be saying to these 12 disciples, they will, they will not complete their mission to evangelize before Jesus comes back in final judgment. Okay, well that didn't happen. What's going on here? I've found as many as eight different interpretations of this. Ranging from, some say Jesus simply comes to them meaning catching back up to them and rejoin them before they finish evangelizing all of Israel. Okay. Some problems with that. Others say Jesus is speaking about the time after the church age when Israel will be left and will be evangelized before Jesus comes again in final judgment. Okay, that fits into some theological frameworks. Still others say Jesus was telling them that they will not completely evangelize Israel before the destruction of of Jerusalem in 70 AD, i.e. God coming in judgment on Israel. Okay. As I was thinking about this more, I think Jesus is speaking principially here. He's laying down a principle for the disciples giving them the principle of the urgency and primacy of the gospel commission. As James Boyce writes, Jesus is saying that we will always have work to do and we will never get to all the places we ought to before Christ comes again. But press on. So be wise when you're persecuted and sometimes flee to keep the Great Commission moving forward because we don't have all the time in the world. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we think we have all the time in the world. And I don't, want, don't like to speak about my kids too often, but I was having a conversation with my son Jack driving home from school this week and asking him you know, about his, his walk with Christ. And, and we were talking about, you know, we, we just don't have all the time in the world to just talk about it. You know, a a truck could pull out right in front of me, driving home from Miris, and that would be it. Sorry. That kind of gives you the urgency. That would be it. You know, maybe some of your friends that you've been talking to need to know that there's urgency to this. And we need to know that there's urgency, too, with all the various pressures that come with the gospel. Secondly, Jesus wants us to deal with our persecutions confidently, wisely and confidently. This is what we see in verses 26 through 33. That's what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples. In verse 26, he says, So have no fear of them, for nothing is covered that will not be revealed, nor hidden that will not be made known. Jesus is refocusing our minds not on this world, but the next. Did you notice that? 
He's taking our minds and telling us in, in persecution, focus on the next world. He's reminding them and us that, that justice will come then, not now. Those who have persecuted Christians will be eventually exposed for the evil that they are doing. But not now, necessarily. But perhaps more to the experience of me and you. The persecution comes in the form of of people saying things against us. Saying false things about us. Perhaps you've had that experience in your life. As you stood for Christ, people will begin saying false things against you. Putting words in your mouth, mouth that you did not say. Things attributed to you that you did not do. What Jesus is saying is, be careful to get too wrapped up in that. Don't obsess on that. Don't obsess on the here and now. Because all those false things will come out later. Have confidence that in the end, the truth will be brought out into the light. As you proclaim the gospel and stand for what God says, brothers and sisters, people are going to say false things about you. This is probably the thing that keeps our mouth closed the most is because we fear what other people think and say about us. Think about that. We keep our mouths closed because we think people are thinking bad things about us. And sometimes they say them. But that's what closes our mouth. Think about it. As we tell people that they are sinners on the road to hell, we will be called nasty and hateful, won't we? When we tell people that Jesus is the only way, what do they say? You're intolerant. You're narrow. As we tell people that homosexuality is a sin, what are we called? Homophobic and hateful, right? When we stand for life and fight for the genocide of the unborn, what are we called? Misogynists. Even as the church makes membership more meaningful as the Bible does, and we discipline people formally that are in unrepentant sin, what are we called? Harsh, unloving, cold. In other words, how do we endure the untruths that will circulate about you and me and the church? How do we endure that? If this is the big thing, this is the big persecution in the life of an American Christian, which it is, how are we going to endure that? Well, our natural proclivity is what? What does our flesh tell us to do? Defend yourself, right? And sometimes that's proper and right. But here it says, have a healthy distrust about your emotions. Because that's what Jesus is saying here. Your reputation is not the most important thing. Oswald Chambers quotes Alexander White in his de- devotional and says this, Eschew controversy, my brethren, as you would eschew the entrance into hell itself. 
Let them have their own way. Let them talk. Let them write. Let them correct you. Let them criticize you. Let them judge you and condemn you. Let them slay you because you do not have enough of the divine nature in you to be a controversialist. In other words, your flesh will always tell you to fight. Always. Defend. Hit back. Speak up. But how we are to deal with that temptation is by knowing that the truth will come out in the end. That falsehood will be vindicated in the end. That's where our mind needs to be. And if it's not there, you will fall prey to your flesh. That's how Jesus withstood it. You remember what Peter tells us about how he did it? First Peter 2, he says, Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example. This is about as easy biblical interpretation as you can have. Leaving for you as an example, that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He was right. And brothers and sisters, sometimes you will be right. And you are right when you proclaim the gospel. What did Jesus do? When they hurled insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges rightly. Jesus had his mind on the end. And brothers and sisters, so do we. Jesus withstood falsehoods by entrusting his reputation to God. And that's a lesson we have to learn, especially in this age of political correctness, of intolerance, of hate crimes that's coming. Brothers and sisters, that's coming. Otherwise, we will slowly close our mouths. That's what will happen to the American church. But Christ also gives us one other confidence to hang on while we're here, not just looking towards the future, a confidence right here, and that is that you're highly treasured. Our scripture reading in Isaiah 43 told us that we are precious in God's eyes. And he tells us here again in verse 29 that we're precious in his eyes too. Look with me at 29. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. Even the hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Persecution and pressures that come from being a Christian in a fallen world can lead to fear. Fear. We're going to deal with fear next week, but we all fear this fear. But I want you to imagine a throne room for a second. Imagine a throne room for a second. Seated on the throne is a great king. He is surrounded by his attendants on their best behavior. Now I want you to imagine a box at his left foot. It's filled with his favorite treasures. 
gold, gems. The collection of, of treasures brings him great joy, and he looks at it often from his seat. And sometimes he reaches down and he just drags his, his hand through those treasures to remind him of it. And sometimes he picks up individual ones and stares at them. He keeps it by his side and he never lets it out of his sight. He protects it with all of his sovereignty. Brothers and sisters, that's how God treasures you. First Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special treasure. That's what Jesus is conveying in those two verses. The antidote to our fear, Jesus is saying, is to realize what a treasure you are to God Almighty. He watches over us each day and protects us because we're so valuable to him. Jesus, we're told in Hebrews 7, intercedes for us constantly. That's why he lives. We're told in Romans 8 that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. We are God's treasure. I don't know if you are of my generation, but... But in my generation, the Toy Story, Story, Toy Story trilogy is kind of near and dear. We grew up taking our kids to it, and our kids loved it. What made those movies so poignant was the love that the toys had for their owner, Andy. They did everything in those movies to fight to get back to him when they were separated from him. And their owner, owner Andy, loved them and kept them close, kept them on his bed. What made the third installment of this trilogy so heart-wrenching was the fact that Andy had grown up and no longer loved those toys. And so you see him boxing them up, right? And putting them in the attic, or at least destined for the attic. His love for them, their, the toys' love for Andy had, nev- had never waned. But Andy's love for the toys had. So they were pushed aside and forgotten. And that crushes something down deep in each and every person, doesn't it? P- being pushed aside. Boxed up outgrown, forgotten. At our core, we want to be treasured forever. And that's what the gospel promises to each and every believer. They're treasured right here, right now. And that gives you, and that gives me, confidence to go on. Hebrews 13, 6 says this, 
God has said, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Indeed. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the encouragement that you've given us today. Thank you for the ways in which you protect us and care for us and treasure us and encourage us to be wise as we face the world, as we go amidst the wolves. Help us, Lord, to be courageous, as we will see next week, as we go forward, opening our mouths despite that opposition. In Jesus' name, amen.